truly honored to be here. Uh, I was asked to speak about Islamists and Outspring. Let me first say that I don't like the term Outspring. I think it's a, mis it's a mistake. It turns into something much less ple uh, pleasant than Outspring, than Spring. Uh, I think we should also remember that the original U 1848 European Spring not also turned very well, and you can see some maybe similarities to some negative outcomes. Uh, but it became popular in uh, May. Uh, I would like first to raise three points from which I'm later going to argue a little bit with. Is one is that the Islamists have kidnapped the revolutions in the Middle East. And this was a wonderful revolution somehow kidnapped by these Islamists. Second is that the radical Islamists or Salafis uh, will lose or are losing support because now we have democracy and their agenda will not be able to sell itself. I think it's too optimistic. And it also that Al-Qaeda is on the verge of collapse. Again, I think there's a, it's a optimistic. Uh, I think that if you look at the, what's, what's happening in, in some of the Arab countries, uh, there was a misperception that the uh, revolution started by westernized, democratic young people, and somehow uh, then the Islamists came over and kidnapped the revolutions. I think even in Tahrir, the uh, Muslim brothers were all the time there, behind the scenes, they were very smart, allowing these nice, uh, fluently English-speaking uh, young, young people to be at the front to talk to CNN, but they were, they were behind, they were, by the way, even organizing uh, cleaning uh, uh, the cleanup organization or watching uh, the, the barriers uh, before the police uh, and, and so on. Uh, they supplied microphones, uh, and basically they had the organization. Uh, you don't have 700,000 people in a square without any organization, and very much the, they, they supplied the uh, organization. So I think uh, this is a mistake, and of course it ignores the, the deep, uh, or the large network which Islamists have built in Egypt for many years and also in some other countries. And basically, I think what, is, what we see now in the Middle East or the, with the various upheavals and the rise of Islamic movement is the culmination of a process that started 40 years ago with when, when political Islam became a major political force in the Middle East or the, a major force in the public arena. Uh, you can speak of a process of the decline of secular Arab nationalism that started in the 1960s. Uh, the 67 war, you could say, was a watershed. Uh, and the, this uh, uh, decline of secularism or secular nationalism was a long process due to many factors, uh, the failure of uh, our regimes, the uh, um, diminishing, I would say, uh, attraction of, of the West. That is, if you look historically in the 19th century or early 20th, uh, first half of the 20th century, Western culture, Western civilization <coughs> seemed to be sort of the model to be emulated be envied, uh, so uh, the second half of the 20th century became very often, instead of a source of emulation, to perceive to be the source of the problem, not of the, of the solution uh, to the Middle East. And also, uh, the appeal of Western civilization, Western culture, the decline, I think what is going to the past five years, in, in a sense, is a peak because of the deep structural uh, crisis. Uh, in Europe and the US, again, the West seems to be much less attractive uh, than it ever was uh, before. And here, you could say, our elaborate Islam emerged very much as the alternative 
uh, to uh, uh, the West. And I think, again, a, a, a very popular claim was that people voted for Islamists in Egypt or other countries, both because governments in the past have suppressed any other alternative and people had no alternative but Islam, or people voted for the Islamists because uh, they had the best organization and they uh, were wonderful at welfare and people voted for them because they gave them money or uh, welfare. Now, it's not that these arguments are wrong. They, they are partially true, but they're only partially true. I think they miss a certain point. If it's, if it's a question of uh, only organization, how do we explain the success of the Salafis in Egyptian uh, elections and elsewhere? I mean, who are uh, much new, newer to politics than the Muslim Brothers? Uh, if it's a question only of uh, uh, welfare, how do we explain the fact that in Egypt, for instance, uh, Islamists have won uh, the elections for all professional associations from the 1970s? Lawyers, doctors, engineers have been dominated by Islamists in the 1970s, and these are not the poor people. It's some middle-class people, upper-middle-class people. How do we explain Islamist success in Kuwait, which is not the, not the poorest country in the Middle East? Uh, so it's not only a question of people getting uh, uh, welfare and then going to vote for whoever, whoever pays them. Uh, I think a major element here is the perception that Islam represents a, a culture of authenticity or, again, a, a, a central element of, of identity vis-a-vis -vis, uh, threatening Western uh, culture and civilization. I think here there's a definition which I like very much from uh, the anthropologist Ernest Gellner who explained the turn to Islam from the 1970s onward and the fact that Muslim societies are torn between attraction to modernization or modernity on the one hand and populism on the other hand and this populism is defined as this idealization of popular traditions or, or uh, uh, idealization of uh, uh, historical traditions, real or imagined historical traditions, uh, which stem from the desire to preserve or maintain self-dignity, uh, uh, desire to maintain uh, self-identity, which is not uh, borrowed from the, from the outside, which is not seen as, as a second-rate emulation or imitation of uh, uh, foreign uh, culture, cultures. And in this regard, Islam represents the most effective uh, uh, authentic identity, uh, and Islam is perceived as, is perceived like uh, as such because of it, it's rooted in local culture. It is again is perceived to be uh, more suitable to local conditions. It's not a foreign solution imported from other uh, civilizations, uh, such as liberalism or socialism, who are often blamed. To, uh, I mean, the failure in the Middle East often blamed to the fact that they are unsuccessful. I usually, uh, uh, when I try to explain to my students, I say, imagine that you are a construction worker in Cairo or any other Middle Eastern city, and after 10 hours of work, you come to listen to two lectures. And you have a Marxist lecture and an Islamist preacher. And the Marxist lecture begins to tell you that uh, the uh, superstructure comes from the in infra uh, infrastructure. By the third structure, you fall asleep. You don't understand the terminology is using. Whereas uh, the Muslim preacher will tell you that uh, the current leader is like Pharaoh and we are like Moses and every, every child, every Muslim child knows who Pharaoh is and who Moses is. And again, there's a saying, Musa, that is every, every Pharaoh has his own uh, Moses. So 
these preachers can use symbols, you can use names, can terminology that every person understands, even the least educated uh, person. And of course, it is much more attractive than this uh, heavy, jargonized uh, uh, Western uh, uh, ideology. So, in this regard, Islamists uh, uh, represent the uh, uh, rejection of what we call modernity, not, mod not modernization. That is, um, uh, in full support of Western science and technology, but they are against the uh, whole cultural ideological package usually associated with this uh, development, you could say, with West, uh, Western en enlightenment. Now, if you look at the most, uh, and of course, when you speak about Islamists, we have to uh, distinguish between two main group, groups, the Muslim Brothers, who are the larger group, the majority group, that want what you can say to modernize Islam or Islamize modernity, uh, and the Salafis who take a much more radical uh, approach. Now, if you look at the Muslim Brothers, right, so far, uh, you can see that they are much more successful in countries which are uh, relatively homogeneous. Uh, ethnically or uh, culturally, like Egypt, like Tunisia, like Morocco, like the Palestinians, uh, where there is a, a, it's a much more homogeneous society, or we could say where you had a relatively strong state. And the Muslim Brothers were able to uh, develop or uh, uh, grow in such uh, places much more successfully, whereas in countries which are either deeply divided along ethnic or religious lines, then the Muslim Brothers are less successful, uh, such as Iraq, such as Lebanon, such as Syria, by the way, and there the Salafis have an advantage. And as, the, as the process continues, to say, as the crisis exacerbates, uh, the Salafis uh, seem to be uh, better prepared or have an advantage over uh, uh, the Muslim Brothers. Also, again, in, a, in, in states where, or in countries where the state is weak, or weakening, or does not exist, the Salafis had an advantage. You can see it in Iraq, where uh, the Salafis had, uh, were much more effective. Not necessarily popular, by the way, but more effective uh, in causing uh, harm or uh, death. In Libya, where the state disintegrated after the fall of Gaddafi, and you have various Salafi organizations, gangs, Mali today. Uh, and as you can say that whenever there's a vacuum in power, Salafis come in. Uh, maybe something like uh, water that uh, spread uh, whenever there's uh, uh, open space uh, uh, for them. Uh, now, what is also uh, important to look at is that uh, uh, the, the rise of Islamism, on the one hand you can speak of a, a regional wide phenomenon, but of course each, each Islamic movement has its own local characteristics. Uh, it's uh, uh, own not only history, but it, uh, it develops in a different way and maintains certain local characters. I think one of the interesting things, for instance, in Egypt was that, uh, at least it's an outsider, that when the revolution took place, many Egyptians said, we are very proud to feel Egyptians, or we are proud of, of, of being Egyptians. Or the Libyans went back to sort of the semi-traditional Libyan dress, uh, uh, dress code before Gaddafi. That is, at least the politicians do it. Uh, so, uh, I mean, we may see a more Islamist Middle East, but it's not going to be a unified Middle East. Each, each Muslim Brother movement will, ha will have, or has, or will have its own local interests, its own local agenda, 
they may cooperate, but of course they will also be divided along state lines. Again, to give an example, if you take Egypt and you take Hamas in Gaza, both are Muslim Brother movements. There's a lot of sympathy <coughs> for Hamas uh, with the, among the Egyptian Muslim Brothers, but when there was an oil shortage in Egypt, Egypt stopped uh, shipping fuel to Gaza. And with all due respect to our Palestinian brethren, Egyptian uh, public is more, is more important. Egypt did not open the Gaza-Egyptian border completely. It still keeps it under strict control because it does not want to have a flood of Gazans uh, uh, coming to Egypt. And Egypt played an instrumental role in uh, brokering a ceasefire between Hamas and Israel because it, it did not wish to uh, an escalation that may endanger the Israel-Egyptian peace process, not because, again, they are enthusiastic about it, but because they cannot afford uh, to abolish it. So even within Egypt and Hamas, you can see differences, uh, and which my guess will, will grow, and we'll probably see it uh, in other uh, other countries once all of these movements become more established. Uh, I was in a conference a year, a year ago, and there was a person called Azam Tamimi, who was an Islamist in London. He spoke about this new great United Arab uh, uh, Republic stretching from Morocco to the Gulf, which will be Islamic. And this is why it will be successful, because now they have a common ideology. There were two Lebanese guys behind me who were sweating from fear from his uh, dream. Uh, but uh, again, I think this is an illusion that uh, it's, it's, it's not going to take uh, place. Uh, I think the deep divisions between our countries and our regions will continue under different guise, even if the, all of these countries become Islamic. But of course, there will be uh, some uh, sort of uh, cooperation. Now, I think, again, if you look uh, at uh, uh, Egypt for a second, and we have here a greater expert on Egyptian Salafism than myself, but I will just say that I mean, you can look, you can already see important divisions within each of these movements, not only the brothers against, against the Salafis in, in Egypt, but even the brothers have a problem between uh, younger generation and the, and the older uh, leadership, which has uh, been there for too many years, which is uh, uh, very rigid. Um, I think it will have a problem, with, uh, some difference between those who will become more part of the government and, and those who became men of the movement, something similar to what happened in Iran. When people would change positions, they go into their place in, in, once they're in government or once they're, or if they're outside uh, government. You can also see a difference, by the way, in Syria, when the Saudis support the Salafis, the Saudis finance the Salafis in Syria today, whereas the Qataris finance the Muslim Brothers. The, the Saudis do not like the Muslim Brothers in Egypt. Um, both because they're too modern for them, both because they turned out against the Saudi government. So the Saudis support the Salafis in Egypt, in Egypt as well, against uh, uh, the Muslim uh, uh, brothers. Uh, and again, this will give, will, will give the Salafis a certain advantage. Of course, also, when the Muslim brothers will face the immense difficulties of running a country like Egypt, uh, this will be an advantage to uh, the Salafis. Another thing to look at is uh, sort of what are the prospects for democratization under these Islamic movements. Uh, I'm the one who believes that these movements are inherently anti-democratic. 
they, uh, I believe that they use democracy as an instrument. They don't accept the values of democracy. Now, they understand today the need to play according to the democratic uh, game, but I think that once they're allowed to, they will try to uh, sort of empty democracy from any content, content that they can have in Egypt, uh, I think, that all, uh, but you can already see signs for that. On the other hand, uh, I think they're probably very well aware of, uh, of the need of, of being accountable to, to public opinion. That is, what will happen, is likely to happen, this in the very near future, because I think making predictions for the long run is uh, too dangerous profession than it is nowadays. But we are likely to see probably types of governments that are more attuned to public opinion. They understand that they can be toppled if they are become totally disconnected from the public. So uh, we already, by the way, see something which is even uh, much worse. And that is not necessarily democracy, but uh, uh, all of the public square. Uh, rule of the mobs, which is not democratic. Uh, so this will be governments that will be more attentive uh, to public opinion, understand the need to accountability, but this is not going to be liberal democracy. That is, the respect for civil rights, human rights, minority rights, women's rights will be sacrificed, in my view, in the long run. Um, <clears throat> now, you can see, by the way, I think that uh, already, with what is going on, the two major losers from this process right now are minorities, that is, the non-Muslim minorities, and women. And I'll give you some examples. Uh, give you two examples about women. I don't know, you know, Turkey has a wonderful image in the West of this most successful, wonderful model of Islam and democracy, Islam and capitalism. But there was a very disturbing uh, news item in the New York Times, actually, the, we take the number of women killed on honors killing in Turkey. It has risen from about 50 women who were killed in 2002, before the Islam AKP came to power, to over 950 on the first seven months of 2009 alone. That is a 1,300% rise of honor killing of women. Now, not because the law has been changed. The law has not been changed in Turkey. But because Turkish men finally have an understanding, the feeling that someone listens to them. Someone understands their plight when they kill their wife, and when they go to the police, the policemen understand what they, are, what, what, what they feel and supports them. And I think this is an atmosphere. And I think this is a, an, one indication of a, of a possible development in the Middle East. Similar place, by the way, you can see it in Iraq. <coughs> Following the American invasion, again, not that Saddam Hussein was a great uh, supporter of uh, women's rights or human rights or whatever, but in some ways, from, at least from the legal point of view, there's been a regression in the status of women in Iraq following the American invasion, because it's part of American policy to buy the support of tribes uh, or, uh, against Al-Qaeda. There was a restoration of tribal law regarding women, or more traditional law regarding women, and the rights of women, uh, I mean, uh, so there's a major regression in women's rights in uh, liberal democratic Iraq or democratic Iraq, not liberal, democratic Iraq or post-invasion Iraq compared to the past. And I, and, uh, I think there are ominous signs in Egypt and other uh, countries as well. Only uh, a week ago Hamas, which is more careful, more cautious than other Islamic governments, 
has passed a law that now um, the, uh, requires all women uh, uh, students to wear the hijab at universities and schools. So this is uh, uh, one indication, and of course minority rights, uh, we, can, we can see it in Iraq, where the Christian minority suffered violence, and practically all, almost all of it is out of Iraq. I think there is also a beginning of emigra uh, serious emigration of Christians from Egypt. There is a magic number which everyone uses, 100,000 people, I don't know how true it is, but it, even if, let's say, if it's an exaggeration, it's still, it's, it's a process, and I think it's, it's the beginning of a very ominous process. Also, if you look at the plight of Christian minority in Gaza, 3,000 people out of 1.5 million people who are being harassed and, and persecuted in Gaza. So uh, I don't think, and Syria is probably the next place uh, where it's going to happen. Uh, this is one major reason why many of these Christians support the Assad regime, not because they, they like him so much, because they're scared that once he falls, uh, they will be victimized like uh, alongside the, the Alawites. Uh, another important uh, uh, process is the, is the uh, deepening of what we call the Sunni Shi'i cleavage. Now, in, after 2003, there were these uh, stories on the Middle East or the bogey of the Shi'i crescent. Uh, supposedly, this Shi'i offensive uh, stretched from Iran, Iraq, Alawite dominated Syria and Hezbollah in Lebanon that is threatening uh, the Sunni Middle East. And in fact, the, the revolutions of the past two years have been a Sunni uh, revival, or not a counterattack against Syria, but a Sunni revival which seems to roll back this uh, perceived Shi'i uh, threat. And there's a tremendous deepening of the Sunni Shi'i cleavage, partly because of Bahrain, but mostly because of the events in. in Syria, which have divided the Middle East along the Sunni-Shi uh, lines. Practically all Muslim brother movements in the Middle East have turned against the Assad regime, against uh, uh, Iran. Uh, the Assad regime is supported by the Shi-dominant government of Iraq and Hezbollah in Lebanon. And interestingly, uh, a, a Saudi journalist said a few months ago that the Sunni-Shi cleavage has replaced the Arab-Israeli conflict as the more pass, more, most powerful uh, force of, of popular mobilization. And again, you can see it in another way, that in this propaganda war between Salafis and Shi'is, uh, the, har the harshest insult that the Salafis used against the Shi'is are that the Shi'is are worse than Jews, which I regard as a great compliment. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, this has an impact on, on Arab-Iranian uh, uh, relations. Uh, also, interestingly, uh, if you look at uh, even historically, uh, in the past five, uh, ten years or so, Al Qaeda focused, or Al Qaeda supporters focused most of the efforts against the Shias and against Islam. In, uh, first in Iraq, when we could see uh, Al Qaeda volunteers coming from to Iraq to fight the Shias, uh, or now in Syria, and again, some of them say that, uh, of course, once they eliminate Assad, the Assad regime, they will eliminate the Alawites, and then they will turn against Hezbollah in Lebanon. And um, uh, for them, it's a, a, a more urgent priority than um, fighting uh, the Israelis. 
which is, by the way, typical of many radical movements. If you first fight the enemy from within, uh, then you go to against the external enemy. Uh, now, <coughs> uh, if I look, if I turn uh, to sort of this Islamist phenomenon and from an Israeli point of view uh, and uh, on the impact on the conflict, uh, I would say several things. One is that even if Islamist movements adopted what you can call uh, democratic discourse, again, or democratic tactics, they have not changed their ideology so far vis-a-vis -vis Israel and, and Judaism. Um, again, the Muslim Brothers, mostly can claim to be misquoted, and his statements were taken out of context, but Muslim Brothers have not changed. Uh, you can see even uh, a certain exacerbation of anti-Semitism in the sense that uh, during the revolution it became very popular to attribute Jewish origins to all the deposed dictators. Uba tend to be Jewish, Gaddafi is Jewish, Ahmadinejad's enemies in Iran uh, claim that he has uh, Jewish origins. It, and the fact that Jew became this uh, uh, code name for anything that is, is, is negative and bad is a very problematic sign. <coughs> Uh, now, it is true that today Egyptian press, and there's less uh, anti-Semitism and uh, uh, open anti-Semitism in the Egyptian press today than it, uh, it was actually under Mubarak, but there is much more prevalent anti-Semitism on the internet. Uh, I have a colleague, uh, Esli Webman, who follows it much more closely than me, and she claims that uh, the protocols of that design have been more popular than ever on the internet in recent, recent uh, uh, months because they explain what's going on now in the, in the Middle East. Uh, and, and you see in chats and forums when people say that uh, how can you deny the protocols when you see that on a daily basis how all events uh, uh, fit what is written on, in, the, in the protocols. Uh, so this is uh, uh, again a worrying phenomenon uh, from Jewish-Israeli point of view. Now, you can say, of course, that uh, the Muslim brothers, especially in Egypt, have no choice but to be pragmatic vis-a-vis -vis Israel. But the problem is that this uh, makes the already fragile Israeli peace, uh, Egyptian, Israel Egyptian peace treaty uh, already fragile, even more fragile than before. The, like, the danger that such a treaty will, will be revoked because of provocation from, from Salafis in Sinai or some other elements is, is, is much greater than ever uh, before. Of course, a major source of anti-Semitism or state-sponsored anti-Semitism in Iran, in today in the Middle East, is Iran. It is not part of the Middle East, but I want to say a few words, not only because it's my hobby, but uh, something I do, because I think Iran represents a, a very special case of a, of a state-sponsored anti-Semitism, where the leadership, not only Ahmadinejad, but it's a, it's a common mistake to attribute this Holocaust denial or anti-Semitism only to Ahmadinejad. Khamenei, uh, uh, supreme leader, denied the Holocaust, and uh, some of the most senior religious leaders in, in Iran uh, make anti-Semitic uh, statements on, almost on a monthly, monthly basis. Also, Iran is the only country where the state apparatus is spreading anti-Semitism. State TV, uh, of the foreign ministry organized the uh, International Convention to deny the Holocaust. Uh, research centers dedicate uh, their activities to anti-Semitism or to Holocaust uh, denial. 
So Iran here is a special uh, case. And by the way, also, there's an interesting phenomenon which also took place in Arab, in Arab countries. It's presenting the Jews not only as enemies of Islam, but also as nationalist enemies of the specific countries. Now, it has begun in Egypt in several years ago, when several Egyptian scholars supposedly found Jewish conspiracy against Egypt 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. And you can see today in Iran, where there is a concerted effort to describe Jews as enemies of Iran, historically. Um, to give you examples, apparently it was Jewish bankers who uh, were behind all the British companies that exploited Iran in the 19th century. It was Jewish bankers who installed Reza Shah to power in 1922, uh, or 1921, sorry, the, 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 the uh, evil figure in today Iran's historiography. And by the way, if you don't know, Jewish bankers was also installed Hitler to power as part of their worldwide conspiracy. Uh, 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 a popular Iranian historian who headed uh, uh, the State Institute for Contemporary History published a five-volume book on the role of uh, Zoroastrians and Jews and plutocrats in the exploitation of Iran of the past 2,000 years. So this is a, 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 an increasing, a, a spreading phenomenon of describing the Jews as national enemies of these countries, and I think the reason to of doing so is to appeal to those pe people who are not attracted by Islamic ideology. That is, if you that if Islam does not appeal to you, then nationalism will appeal to you, and then you portray the Jews as uh, as national enemies of uh, your uh, country. And I think this is a, again, I'm speaking as an Israeli, uh, of course, I'm uh, not not impartial here. I have. Uh, it's a very problematic. It's a very problematic phenomenon. In the long run, it's a very, it's a, uh, I think, a reason for uh, for being very uh, uh, worried. Now, if you look at the uh, Islamists on the economy, I will say again, making predictions is, is difficult. But I, I will bet that they will fail, uh, and I think they will fail for two. Uh, two or three major reasons. First of all, I, I, I recognize that solving some of the original economic problems is, is an extremely difficult task. Uh, in the 1970s, there was a joke in Egypt, which probably still be applicable today. This is the time of uh, Carter and Brezhnev and Anwar Sadat, that uh, one night, each of them, they all go to heaven and they have an audience with God, and each of them is allowed to ask God one question. And Brezhnev comes in first and he says, God, when will communism rule the world? And God tells him, not in your lifetime, son. So Brezhnev comes down uh, weeping and crying. Carter comes in and says, God, when will the American way of life prevail all over the world? And God tells him, not in your lifetime, son. And he comes down crying and weeping. Then Anwar Sadat comes and says, God, when will Egypt's economic problems be solved? God begins to cry and say, not in my lifetime, son. <laughs> and this was in the 1970s. It is even much worse today than uh, since the 1970s in many ways. Just think of the fact that since the since Mubarak was toppled, Egypt's population has grown by more than, by almost three million people. Uh, so I mean we are talking about staggering uh, difficulties, but the Islamists have no uh, do not have the means to solve this problem for two reasons. One is that in fact Islam as a religion never never dealt with economy in a systematic way. Islam dealt much more with private morality, public morality, with spirituality, 
uh, but never with economics. Aside from very general ideas of uh, compassion, of uh, uh, again vague ideas of social justice, uh, it really had no solutions to uh, serious economic uh, uh, problems. Uh, so, and, in, and the whole idea of what is called Islamic economics is a modern invention. For instance, Sanjani of Iran was very candid about it. When, uh, after the 1979 revolution, he said very openly, we don't, have, we don't know what Islamic economics is. Now we'll have to develop it. And I think the same thing applies uh, to Egypt. Uh, Nasih Ayubi, an Egyptian scholar who wrote about Islamism one years ago, said if you look at the problems of Islamic movements about the economy, basically it says trust us or uh, God will help us. They have nothing uh, concrete. But then he said but they have a very detailed plan on how women should dress uh, following, following the takeover. Second, another problem is that Islamists try to apply legal solutions to economic problems. And it's mixing apples and oranges. It, it's not going, to, not, not going to work. Now, what does it mean, uh, the economic failure? And here I think we can speak of two possible scenarios among many. Maybe these economic difficulties and difficult journey of running the state will force the Islamists to moderate and uh, become, as, someone, as some people used to say, like the Christian Democrats in Europe. Uh, it is possible, but not necessarily inevitable. Another uh, uh, possibility is that this failure plus uh, growing instability plus growing less, uh, uh, growing insecurity may push people in the Middle East, very similar to what happened in France in, 19, in 1850, to support a strong leader who would promise law and order, would promise to restore things, and then will go back to another type of dictatorship. Of, uh, uh. Now, I don't know what will take place. I would, I would dare say that even if Islamists will eventually moderate, uh, it will, even if it happens, it will be a very long process, it will be a very painful process. Uh, such moderation uh, may take place in seven, seven, certain arenas, but not in others. For instance, in Iran, the Iran government has become more moderate in economics, but maintained its anti-Semitism or support of terrorism in other places. So you can choose maybe in what fields you uh, uh, make compromise, ideological compromise, you know, to retain other fields. So, uh, even if the process of moderation, I mean, if moderation will take place, it is, I think, in, I would say it will probably take a very long time. Uh, it will probably be very painful. It's likely to be a painful uh, uh, process, uh, taking some victims along the way. And uh, again, what will be the outcome, I think, remains uh, unknown. And I will stop here. And if you have any questions, I'll try to answer. Thank you very much. I have a Two questions. Um, first one is on Syria. I've long been arguing that uh, the U.S. should be involved and we should get rid of Assad. The argument against it had always been what the Assad regime would say there, foreign terrorist elements out there. I was saying that back then it wasn't that Syria wasn't going to turn into a jihad central immediately in the beginning, and it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy that the jihadist Salafists who were sent across the border to fight in Iraq and in Libya have now all returned, and that we're kind of making the problem even worse. I also argued that the Muslim Brotherhood wouldn't necessarily take over as in Egypt because 
they had less support and they were illegal for all these other words. I, I, I guess the main question in this one is, is Syria destined, was it destined in the beginning, if Assad was toppled, to become a Islamist country? And uh, could that be prevented or can that be prevented now? I, I agree that uh, maybe at the beginning had there been some greater support for more sense, uh, sane elements in Syria, uh, Syria would have been spared from uh, being taken over by Salafis, by jihadists. Now it may be too late. Again, I... I uh, You're saying it's across the region, this is all happening, was, is it, is it, was it preventable Does that just mean then the Muslim Brotherhood was bound to well, take over? Because Syria is a, is, a, is a much more fragmented society than Egypt, uh, there was maybe a possibility that Syria would not have been taken over. But, uh, but I agree that because nothing, ha nothing happened, and of course then the Saudis began to pump money, the Salafis uh, got the upper hand. Um, maybe here things could have been could have been handled differently and the outcome would have been less horrible than it is now. Uh, I think, again, to be folly to make predictions, I think today there is a greater likelihood that Syria will disintegrate into several semi-autonomous enclaves that will fight each other or be in conflict with each other, play with a lot of sectarian cleansing until it happens. Uh, I think this is today uh, a fairly Second question, uh, sorry, is um, there's a there's a, a theory um, that I'm sure holds to be poked in, but that if you look at Iran and Persians, they've gone through a revolution that had a, they they've been through a monarchy, they went through now a Islamist type of government, the Green Movement that came up there, they the people have say realized that neither has worked well. Is there in the wider Arab world, is there, is it probable that they will need to have an Islamist government now that they don't have secular dictators or monarchs, and then that fails for them to be able to choose? That for them to be able to choose that, that neither Islam nor the strongman, as you say, are viable options, or is that just something that you don't think can occur? It's possible, but it's, I'm not saying, I don't know if it's inevitable, but you can argue, you know, someone said about the Eastern is that they choose, they choose their, they can write choice after exhausting all their own choices. <laughs> so, uh, it applies, by the way, to us, Israelis and others. said that about So would you say that the Green Movement, or <coughs> those who rise up in Iran, have got, got to that point yet, or not? Instead, probably in Iran today, most of the people would like a change and would like a more, a more, <coughs> they don't necessarily want secular government, some obviously a more benign Islam, reformist Islam, or open Islam, and so on. The problem in Iran is that again, they are too weak. The government is too strong, or supposedly the government are too strong and better, better organized, and so on. Now, this can change in Iran tomorrow, it can last, continue to another five, ten years. I have no way of knowing. Uh, it is possible again that. Uh, uh, Arab countries, they will have to follow the same path. The problem, of course, is how long it takes and the cost in the middle. Oh, thank you. Well, I, you know, maybe I can pick up from here. Mayor, and I'd like to sort of um, lean on your Iranian expertise if I can, because I think 
one of the really trenchant points you made was about the sectarian cleavage that's emerged in the region of the week with the Arab awakening, which is the label we tend to use rather than the Arab Spring. At this point, um, there are a lot of interests in the Arab world, as you noted, in stoking this sectarian cleavage. Uh, not only amongst the Salafi and the Brotherhood, who have a lot to gain, but also various state actors in the region who find it useful in their conflict with Iran or in dealing with their own domestic issues. Um, I'm very curious, as you've seen this cleavage emerge and the propaganda surrounding it in the Gulf states around the Syrian conflict and so on, how are the Iranians viewing this? I mean, do they worry about getting bogged down in, in having to be the, the supporter of Shia elements around the region? Are they worried about getting bogged down in Syria? Do they want to distance themselves? Or do they see advantage in stooping a confrontation as well? Well, I think in Iran, we have to make a distinction between government and people. No, I'm talking about government. No, no. Yeah. The UN government tries to, or claims all the time, that there is no Sunni issue. This is a Western invention. There's not really no difference between them anymore. That we all is it's Islam, Islam against the West, we should all work together, uh, etc. Uh, and they blame this cleavage on, on, on Israel and the West. On a popular level, I think it's, it, it is important among ordinary Iranians. Uh, you know that, the, for instance, the figure of Baba Shuja, that is the person who killed Caliph Omar, is a popular figure. Uh, so, on the popular level, it is noticeable. Now, I think Iran, again, politically, uh, it's not that Iran feels it is bogged down in Syria. Iran has too much to stake in Syria. And I think Iran, uh, uh, essential for it to help Assad and maybe uh, eventually prevail. Uh, now, there were, uh, there is rumors that there is an anger in, or anger in Iran that Qasemi, uh, uh, the commander of the Quds Force, did not deliver. That is, he was supposed, I mean, we spent $10 billion on Assad and uh, were no results. But uh, I think the Iranians understand that if they lose Assad, the strategic blow to Iran will be too great. Now, Iranians tried historically to appeal to Sunnis, but in reality, they're always much more successful in appealing to Shi'is, and in fact, they have impact only on Shi'is, and they used uh, uh, I mean, look at Hezbollah or other places. So uh, I think the Iranians have a gap between the dream and reality. And reality is that they work with uh, uh, Shi'is. Now, let me just one point. Which I agree with you that the Sunni Shi'i leverage, obviously, there's a lot of manipulation there, and you can say that governments use it. But I think there's a limit to manipulation. That is, if there is no governments using it. it works. Yes, exactly, because it appeals to people. It yeah. to, I can tell you something totally impressionistic, unscientific, okay? I teach, uh, 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 I teach courses and I have uh, uh, Palestinian students in my class, okay, who are all Sunnis. And I see how they look at Shi'is. They always excuse me, they, they sort of have this face, I mean, special expression, they don't treat Muslims, they don't treat like us. So even on the, I mean, they've never seen a Shi in their life. They don't know much about Shi's, but they don't like them. They, they feel sus they suspect them, and so on. So then you can you use use such feelings to people, to people. So even if it is manipulated, if there's no uh, um, say fatal ground to, to uh, accept this manipulation, it will not work. 
prescinding from whether uh, it's possible for the United States or the West to have much influence on what's happened over almost two years in the Middle East. Uh, from the uh, from the beginning, we've tried to encourage uh, United States policymakers uh, to have something of a coherent policy. The closest thing we've seen is, of all places, the House of Representatives, where House Foreign Affairs Committee reported out the Syria Freedom Support Act unanimously uh, in the last uh, Congress, which what it was at least a uh, they articulated a coherent set of, of principles and policies and that we would like to see come to pass in Syria, and it might serve as a paradigm for other uh, states or for the Middle East. And uh, I, what, what today would you see as uh, the possibilities for uh, United States or probably even less uh, likely Israel uh, articulating some policy as to what we would like to see emerge in these nations, uh, not picking sides, or, uh, but uh, hoping for a, a better outcome than what we're seeing in these um, various uh, revolutions. We saw Natan Sharansky have come to Washington in March of 2011 say, and say that he hoped that there would be one uh, fellow democracy for Israel to emerge. And then Amos Yadlin, I heard, uh, about the same time saying, with respect to the security issue, in effect, well, not, to, not to put words in his mouth, but the implication was so long as they're all fighting with each other, they're not so much of a threat to us. Bringing it home to Israel today, there are a lot of rumors that some kind of a conflict could break forth, break out, perhaps in uh, Lebanon. Is this, is this the result of a lack of coherent policy uh, by the U.S. and the West? What kind of a policy prescription might you uh, make? I have to admit one thing, I'm not, I'm not good at uh, advising policies, I, uh, but I will say one thing. From, first I'll speak about Israel, because it's easier for me. I think Israel should do nothing, should not intervene in anything yeah. that's going on in the Middle East. Whenever Israel tried to intervene in the past, the results were worse. And you know you're being blamed, of course, for your yes. it's yeah. all your fault. <laughs> yes, but whenever we intervened, yeah. we, we botched it. And you should not stay out of it. Yeah. I would, I would seem to say that any, any kind of Israel intervention would be the kiss of death yeah. to, the, to the party that Israel supports. Sure. Uh, in that sense, we, we should support Hezbollah, maybe Hamas. <laughs> 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 uh, but, I mean, uh, Israel should not intervene. Yeah. Okay? It's, it's too big for us, uh, and there's that will always be harmful. should try to again work with whatever moderate forces elements are there which will remain in the, in the region. Uh, I'm not sure that there is that uh, let's say a moderate alternative exists anymore in Syria, I don't know. Uh, in, I think they Somehow the U.S. should, uh, there's a problem, let's say, in American-Saudi relations when, when Saudis support elements which are, which work against the U.S. And the U.S. is silent about it. Now, I can understand why the U.S. is silent about it, but I think there's, there's a problem here. Yeah. That in the long run may harm American interests. Uh, 
I think now with Egypt, the US should try maybe, I don't know, let, no, I will maybe, so benevolent pressure on, on the government in Egypt to um, restrain itself. That is, maybe use whatever economic leverage the US has on the current Egyptian government in order to force the Egyptian government to prevent the government from doing some things which would have, would have liked to do. Maybe this is the most the U.S. can do. And, and again, maybe also with try to empower genuine civil society in the Middle East. Uh, if it's possible, uh, especially, let's say, regarding women rights, minority rights, and so on, whatever little impact it may have, maybe it I have to admit, I'm not very good at policy advice. Sounds good, thank you. Oh, Professor, why, um, in your opinion, would be a two-part question, I guess, but why, in your opinion, is the United States willfully giving aid to so-called moderates, but are actually being controlled by Muslim Brotherhood and other such groups, such as in Syria and in Libya and in Egypt? Um, and then secondly, what, in, in the context of all we're talking about, what would be the goal of Russia and China in this overall game? Uh, I think the U.S. again, it's, uh, not an expert in American policy. I think that America, for at least at the beginning, had this. You know, the U.S. was burned in Iran by aligning itself with the losing side for too long, and then the U.S. of you know, not to be aligned with the losing cause of Mubarak, they uh, were very willing to support the, the, the opposition, the other side. Uh, Hoping that this would provide support for them. Now, I think in Libya, I think the situation was different. I think in Libya, the Europeans, Europeans were the, the real problems. Not because the Europeans are great supporters of human rights, but because the Europeans, in my view, and by, by the way, not oil, I think Europeans were scared that if Gaddafi would defeat the rebellion in Benghazi, there would be a flood of refugees from Libya to Europe. And it's only 90 kilometers from Libya to Sicily. You can see that the two most vocal European countries against Gaddafi were Italy and France. Why? Because they are the closest to Egypt, to Libya, and they were afraid of refugees. So in order to keep the future refugees in, in North Africa, they wanted to topple Gaddafi. They didn't think about the outcome. I think the U.S.C. was dragged after the Europeans. Uh, I think maybe the Americans have a problem. Uh, there is maybe in this infatuation that uh, uh, the people are always right. Because if you have a mass movement, then obviously this, it's, people are, must be right. And, and then you don't necessarily understand that the masses are not always right. And they don't necessarily follow the liberal, uh, humanistic elements, but populists and demagogues and so on. So maybe this is. Uh, and I think, by the way, you can see, I remember uh, if you watched, let's say, CNN and uh, some developments in Egypt and other places, I think they were blind to, to some of the less pleasant elements. Because why it's a popular movement, it must be. Uh, and so I can get, get to another point. I, I see people saying, you know, well, Hamas was elected by them democratically. How come the US comes out against Hamas? Being elected doesn't make you a devil. Hitler was elected. Yeah, well, Klan uh, candidates were, were elected in. Alabama in the 1920s and 30s didn't make them uh, uh, So, and this was a, a, a mistake that the UN made. Uh, 
Christmas. And maybe another thing is uh, you've not seen another thing. Well, two comments, questions. The first is um, you discussed this division along state lines between this and this, and that any dreams that people might harbor about the caliph being established or any form of such unity is not possible. Going back to history, to the period of Arab Revolution, we fever Arab nationalism in the 50s and 60s, the, there were also those divisions along the state lines there. Nasserism was very different from the Baptist uh, experiment, whether in Syria or Iraq. But this does not prevent certain elements, or at least the Ba'ath in Syria, because of a national crisis internally, to appeal to the supranationalists in the form of unity with Egypt. A failure, definitely, for three years, but still it did not stop this appeal from existing. So even if it is not possible today, and even they are divided, one wonders whether a crisis in Libya, a division inside Libyan society, wouldn't push for such appeal or such arguments for Islam's unity of some form or another. The other point is regarding those two options of the Islamists might moderate or the, the strong man might appeal. I wonder if a third option is there, and that's, you discussed this rule of the model, the effect of the public square whether a more populist Islamism would emerge. Something along the lines of what Ali Shariati was writing in Iran, something along the lines of Saibu, the social justice in Islam, i.e. a mixture of Islamism with Marxist uh, arguments. And that this, due to an economic failure of the Muslim Brotherhood, whether a branch within Egyptian Salafism, headed by Hazim Salah al or others, wouldn't push for this Islamist populism of the poor, revolt of the poor in the streets. So that are already pretty in their economic Isn't that mixed Islamism and kind of Baptism, too? So wouldn't that kind of be a mix of Islamism and, and Baptism? I mean, socialist, the socialist part of ideology. Uh, right. First of all, yes, it is a very possible solution. Uh, but the first question, I will make a distinction. Certain elements calling for unity may arise, of course. But uh, it will not produce unity, even, even, even before that. There is interesting, uh, you can say, uh, uh, purely theoretical debate. In the future Islamic caliphate, where will be the capital of this future Islamic caliphate? And even if you look at that, back in time, of course, for the Israeli Muslim brothers, it was obviously it would be Cairo. For Hamas, it is obviously it would be Jerusalem. For uh, people in, in the Arabian Peninsula, it's obviously it would be Mecca. So even the, even the Islamists did not agree where the capital would be. Let alone who would lead the, this future uh, United States of the Arab of the Muslim world. So you can have certain elements calling for such unity, Aspiring for such unity, yes, but it will fail. Again, it will not produce uh, any results. And even again, even for the, for the, I think that you will see divisions among them even long before they would even speak of such a unity. So dreams, yes. Uh, in reality, I doubt it very much.
33 years after the Islamic revolution, you have an erosion of religion. There are many indicators that young people in Iran are much less religious than any other place in the Middle East. Uh, that definitely the type of Islam that the Iranian government preaches is not popular. And uh, many, many indications of that. Uh, deepening repression, uh, uh, if you look at the popular level, uh, popularity of satellite TVs, uh, Oh, by the way, again, there was a wonderful movie produced in Iran, in underground, in No Cats in Tehran, of a young group of young people who are looking for a place to organize an underground rap concert. Uh, what's interesting in this group of people that they are totally alienated from the regime. They don't care at all about Islamic ideology. The word God appears in the movie only toward the end once, and in a critical tone against the regime. All the actors, by the way, fled from Iran the moment the movie came out. So it's indication, some indication, you can say, of an alienated youth from Iran. No, there's no doubt about it. No. It doesn't mean, by the way, that, that it's going to be secular. Uh, uh, because I think that if you look at Iranian culture, Iranian identity, I think it has, I would say, three legs. One Islamic, one Persian, or one Iranian nationalism, and one certain Western element. Whenever you tried in history to eliminate one of the three legs, it failed. So, possible, again, that once this regime somehow disappears, there will be a more, a new type of Islam, or, or, and so on. Now, on paper, all the prerequisites for revolution for Iran are out there. But there are at least four or five reasons why nothing happened yet, which I can think of. One is repression, uh, nationalism, which the regime uses very effectively, populism, economic populism, the, fe the uh, fear that what is going on in the Arab world, the chaos, the, the deterioration, will come to Iran. And the result is a culture of apathy, of political apathy. As long as these things continue, the regime can survive from, I don't know how long. Now, it can end tomorrow, it can last for another 10, 15, or 20 more years, I have no idea. Uh, but so never say never in history but I don't know when, when change will take place now regarding the textbooks uh, I would say 
I think there's a major difference between, uh, as far as I, I know, the Israeli textbooks presented present Arab opposition to Zionism. Present, of course, presented the Arabs as, as enemies. Was there a demonization of the Arabs in Israeli textbooks? I don't think so. No, 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 no demonization. By the way, there is no demonization in Palestinian textbooks. Palestinian textbooks are anti-Israeli, of course. They're anti-Zionist, of course. In few of them, there's anti-Semitism. In few, one of them, I found in one of them, I, I did some work on some other things. One of them has a reference to the Protestants of the Elders of Zion. Most of them are anti-Zionist politically, but but again, in, the, in countries of where there is conflict, it's natural. I don't expect otherwise. I think it is naive to believe that two peoples are in deep conflict would say, well, the other side is wonderful. It doesn't happen. Uh, uh, how is Britain presented in American textbooks when we discuss this revolution or the 1812 war? Obviously not in, in the wonderful terms. Yeah. There's a difference, again, between this element and the type of anti-Semitic propaganda disseminated in, let's say, in, in the Arab media, which is something much, much worse than in, than, than in these, these uh, textbooks. And by the way, if in, by Hamas, Hamas TV, uh, Hamas text websites and so on. So there is a, a qualitative difference between these textbooks on both sides and this anti-Semitism propagated in, in the art media, or by the way, by religious circles in the Middle East, which are much, much worse. Some, some of them, genocidal. I mean, openly advocating the elimination of Jews. And, uh, it does not exist in either Israeli textbooks, nor Palestinian textbooks. And uh, I'll just add a footnote to your question. I, I know for a fact, mm -hmm. I'm speaking carefully, that uh, several of the people involved in the project had predetermined perspectives of what the conclusions going to be. And I'm not speaking, uh, I'm being cautious in my words, I know that for a fact. And they also circumvented a committee that they were supposed to present their work to, and they did not. So there was, a, I, think, I think there was a very clear, in my opinion, there was a clear political agenda in the research and from the front. I'll give an example. Israeli textbooks just present a Arab attacks on, on Jews in the 1920s and 30s. They don't present, let's say, other, let's say, the more nicer aspects of art culture. But first of all, this is not a, a distortion of truth. They were attacks. Okay, the fact that you highlight them, but you don't highlight, I don't know, our poetry, is should be say regrettable. But it is in a, in a, in a, in a conflict. It is natural. Uh, Palestinians present Zionism as colonialism. I disagree with it, but I can understand why they do it. Uh, it is not anti-Semitic. It, it is not what is what is happening on Egyptian TV, on Iranian TV, or on again on the on the on the on some Saudi press, which is very you know, something totally different. Thanks, uh, David Borman, Middle East Research Center. Late last year, the International Energy Agency announced that it's technically possible for the United States to become energy independent by 2020 and uh, a major energy exporter by 30, and there's also uh, Israel will also uh, come online uh, with their offshore natural gas project this spring, and there's there's a lot of uh, you know enthusiasm about natural gas onshore and offshore in Israel, and so we see this great potential in 10 or 20 years uh, for the world's energy map to be a lot different, and a lot of uh, decreased uh, demand for oil from OPEC countries. 
you have any, any thoughts? I, I guess I don't know exactly what my question is, but what is, what is the Middle East uh, geopolitical situation look like if the world's not clamoring uh, for OPEC oil and the price of oil is, is decreased significantly? First of all, okay, I'm not an oil expert, but remember China. Mm. Uh, consumption of oil in China increases daily. Uh, and, oh, I should have said, by the way, about Russia. I should have the consumption of oil in China, India is going up all the time. So it may offset the decline of American demand for oil. Uh, with all due respect to Israeli gas, uh, it will not uh, deliver us from need of uh, oil for, for cars and so on. Ironically, if there would be oil prices would go down significantly, it would be a disaster not only for the Saudis but for the Egyptians, for the Jordanians, for other countries, and this would not be good for the Middle East. Again, as an Israeli, I don't want the Arabs to be bankrupt because that would be a disaster for them for everyone. I mean, not that I don't. Better equality in the Arab world would be good for everyone, not that be super rich UAE and Saudis and poor Egyptians. But I mean. Uh, 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 Totally impoverished Middle East is a disaster for everyone. Uh, now, regarding China, and, and I think there's a distinction between Russia and China. Russia is obviously unhappy with Islamists, uh, but Russia is bitter at the US, and I think Russia today does almost everything in order to spite the US. Or uh, uh, one thing, secondly, Russia clings to its to Assad and others because the, this is the, the last vestige of Russian grandeur in the Middle East. China doesn't care. Right? China cares for economics, China cares for the Middle East as a market, China is not scared of Iran nuclear weapons, for instance, because they know it doesn't threaten them. China is less, China is scared about one thing, by the way, popular votes. The Chinese are, uh, I would say, are terrified from anything that sounds like popular vote, and this is why China support Assad because China does not, China believes that these popular reports are contagious. They could reach their own Islamic, uh, 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 I'm contradicting myself, but I would say but it is more anxious about toppling governments. But whatever government exists, I think is less of a power for China because uh, they are much more economically minded. And one thing, and also, again, if you look at China and Iran, both of them share certain resentment of both of them see themselves as ancient civilizations, temporarily suffering setbacks, both of them humiliated by Western upstarts. Uh, who are the US? Only 250 years old, and you're telling us how to behave. Uh, and there's mutual respect. Uh, so, uh, so this is, I think, one of the things motivating. Having any effect on the growing Islamization in Europe and the use in Europe in radicalizing them and inspiring them to want to make France and Italy and Scandinavia and Britain into Islamic states. There's always obviously an influence because if you look at the rise of Islamism in Europe, it is always fueled from the Middle East. 
preachers and the text and the tapes and the texts and I think it also uh, Islamism is in rise in Europe because of the fear of integration in Europe. Uh, the growing socioeconomic crisis in Europe will obviously fuel Islamism in Europe. Failure of the European welfare state and so on, uh, and also of course demographics uh, will be a major thing. Uh, now, do they want to make all of them? Not all of them want to make European states. I think the radical Salafists believe in this, but I think most of them, uh, they only look at them in France as an Islamic country, but they seem to reject this France as the French model. face a major problem, no question about it, with uh, its failure to integrate Muslims. Uh, uh, you mentioned in passing, I think, uh, genocide or incitement to genocide. Now, the Congress before last, uh, the House passed a resolution almost unanimously to uh, urge the Security Council to charge uh, Ahmadinejad with incitement to genocide. Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, pursuing this tag? not a military or completely diplomatic approach, but uh, a legal approach. It's a wonderful thing which will never happen. Pardon me? It's a wonderful thing which will never happen because I don't see European uh, International Court possibly uh, any UN official and the uh, likelihood of UN turning against Iran is, uh, let's say, much smaller than the likelihood of UN doing something against Israel. It's, it's a wonderful dream, but uh, I think it's totally unrealistic. I have a question. What, how do you perceive, or how is the United States perceived today? So I'm thinking, in the Cairo speech, the Obama administration symbolically invited the Muslim Brotherhood to sit in the front row to confirm their men. Days later, when the Iranians were uh, revolting in the millions uh, against the regime, the United States essentially was silent, which must have been deflated from the people of Iran. What, what is the role? in the United States in creating a vacuum in places like Syria and the Middle East more generally. Are they creating a vacuum? No, they're not creating a vacuum. I think they are maybe unable to defend it, but I don't think they create a I think Iran, the US did not intervene in Iran out of the fear that if they would intervene, it would be used by the regime to destroy the protesters as American agents. I think they were afraid to play into the hands of the Iranian regime, rightly or wrongly. Uh, I think there is always there was always this ambivalence in the US. I would say love hate relationship. There's a certain admiration. There is of course certain opposition to the US. Partly because of envy. No, envious in the world. Partly because of envy. Uh, they're successful and we are not. Partly because of the threatening Western culture. In the 1970s and 80s, if you remember those ancient TV programs, the Muslim Brothers used to argue that the uh, Dallas and Dynasty are much more dangerous than American tanks because they penetrate every house. Uh, partly because of American support for reason, I can't deny it. I would like to, but I can't deny it. It is, it is effective. Uh, and the US will always be blamed, for, by the way, for, for intervening and, offering, and for not intervening. Because, by the way, I think there's a problem in the Middle East of uh, blaming others for, for their own problems. 
It made Iraq into an Iran satellite. So they're angry with the U.S. The uh, uh, U.S. is seen as, uh, is, uh, as hypocritical in supporting the Saudis when they speak about human rights and supporting, uh, not popular because it supports Israel against others, but if it would be not popular, again, it would, it would do the opposite thing. So being a major power has a cost. Uh, it's very easy to blame you on everything. Any other questions? Thank you. Thank you, Mayor. And we will have more programs in the future, probably next semester. So if uh, you put your emails, you'll be on our mailing list and we'll see what's